you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. In 2014, Time Magazine published an article entitled, The Transgender Tipping Point, where the article began to articulate the success and the struggle of the transgender movement in our cultural moment. In 2015, the conversation continued as Caitlyn Jenner won Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year Award and ESPN's ASPE, the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, which stirred a lot of controversy. In 2016, President Obama issued a directive for transgender students to use the bathrooms that align with their gender identity. In 2017, President Trump reversed that directive. In 2020, the conversation continued as Juno star Elliot Page came out as transgender. Earlier in this year, Leah Thomas, a transgender woman who participated in collegiate swimming competitions made headlines when she won a Division I national championship. And just this month, a 10-year-old transgender girl from Chicago, Noella McMayer, whose parents both identify as transgender and who has an infant sibling they refer to as Theyby, walked this month for the New York Fashion Week for the, new, for the trans clothing company as one of many trans and non-binary models. To say that we are at the transgender tipping point is absolutely true. We find ourselves in a cultural moment where the conversation around transgender rights and issues seem to be at the forefront of our cultural moment. Each of these moments displayed both progress and pushback on this framework and ideology. And if we could be honest, all of this can feel a bit confusing. How are we as followers of Jesus to thoughtfully consider this conversation? What role does gender play in our understanding of who we are? How is this conversation forming and shaping us? How do we respond to some of our culture's most important and crucial questions? All of these questions I will hope to answer in today's conversation. But before we get started, a brief pastoral word. So, as you've come in this morning, you have probably previously thought about and formed opinions on this conversation. And it can be easy to get drawn in to talking points and uncharitable rhetoric based on the perspective that you come from. So as a way to preface this conversation, it's really important to remember this. We're not simply talking about ideas, we're talking about people. That when we have the conversation around gender and the transgender movement, we are talking about people. People who are deeply loved by God and created in his image who are often marginalized and misunderstood. So our response as followers of Jesus is first and foremost, compassion. I realize that for a lot of people in the room, understanding and working through this conversation can be confusing and challenging. However, 
our call as followers of Jesus are not to minimize or disregard the reality of other people's lives simply because we do not understand or because it's complex, but instead is like Jesus to sit with them, hear their story, and extend great compassion and care. For a moment, I want you to hear the words of someone with gender dysphoria describe what it is like for them. They say this, the piercing to the heart feeling when you feel like every single person in the room is staring at you, like your heart is ripped open and they're just picking at the pieces. This may sound pretty harsh to someone who has never experienced gender dysphoria. However, for me, it happens in some degree almost every time I'm out in public places with people around me. It also happens before I get ready to go out, and this has become such a battle. Fighting just to leave my house by the time I've fought for hours at a time, I'm exhausted and broken. I feel inadequate, broken, and I just want to disappear. And so, for those in attendance who may identify as transgender or be currently wrestling through gender dysphoria, I want to let you know that this is a safe place for you to wrestle through life's most difficult questions about your life, your identity, and your faith. And we are so happy that you are here. And I realize that historically the Christian community has not been a space for those who do not conform to either masculine or feminine stereotypes to feel welcomed or invited into the life of the community. And for that, I sincerely apologize. I want to apologize also for those who have been on the other end of hurtful or aggressive language or behavior from those who claim to follow Jesus. Hear me in this, that is not his heart for you. And I want to acknowledge that in this conversation, I cannot paint in all the particulars of your story or journey, but today is my fragile attempt to help our community think more deeply and love more widely in this area. But because this is a conversation, it's important that in our cultural moment, we simply don't just address personal experiences, but we address the underlying frameworks and ideologies present in this conversation. So today we will be talking about concepts, biblical, theological, scientific, medical, and philosophical, all pertaining to what it means to be human and what it means to live in the reality of being made in the image of God. As a disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a clinician, I'm not an activist, and I'm not a sociologist. I am a local Christian pastor. So my sermon today is not primarily addressed towards the culture, but to the family of Jesus and to those who follow him and who those who desire to follow him. Remember, our whole series about sexual, uh, sexuality is geared around formation, asking the question, who are we becoming by the things that we are doing? And so... When we are talking about these ideas, it's not happening merely in a vacuum, but I'm addressing them as they specifically pertain to how they influence and shape the people we become. Now, before we get started too deep into this conversation, I think it's really important that we define our terms, um, especially as we navigate into this specific conversation. Definitions and terms of the utmost importance to make sure we're all speaking the same language and understand what exactly that we're talking about. And as a secondary disclaimer, I want to give uh, credit to where credit is due. I am borrowing greatly from Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, Preston Sprinkle book, Embodied, and uh, John Tyser's lecture on Jesus, gender, and the trans community. So 
if you're looking for more resources, there's some great ones there. By the way, Love Thy Body, if I can recommend a book to you, I'm recommending that book to you. It is absolutely phenomenal um, on this area. So let's define our terms. Let's first talk about gender and sex. These are the two most important terms in our conversation are sex and gender. Everything else flows out of these terms. So historically, these terms have been used synonymously. Sex was gender and gender was sex, right? When you would go fill out a form at a doctor's office or anywhere else and you'd see either gender or sex, you would mark either male or female, right? We see this from doctor's forms to passports, etc. And traditionally, Christians have taught that our bodies are vitally important for our discipleship and our understanding of who we are in the world. So for Christians, it has always been aligned that your sex and gender are aligned together. But this is not the context of our broader culture. To address the broader culture and answer key questions in terms of discipleship, we have to get in the weeds a bit and talk about the cultural framework around gender theory. So let's first define sex. Sex in our, in our cultural moment refers to biological sex, which are categories to classify the respective roles humans play in reproduction. As human beings, we are sexually dimorphic. Di meaning two, morphic meaning forms. We come sexually in two forms, either male or female. Males and females are distinguished from one another by the different reproductive structures and or biological sex. And our biological sex is determined by four things. The presence or absence of a Y chromosome, internal reproductive organs, external sexual anatomy, and an endocrine system that produces secondary sex characteristics. Now, some of you may be wondering about what about those who are intersex? And for now, let's just set those sets of questions aside. I believe it's best to address intersex conditions head on, and we won't talk about that right now. We'll come to that a little bit later. So, in summary, sex is not a social construct. Some interpretations of sex and sex bodies might be socially constructed, but sex in and of itself is not socially constructed. It is rooted in biological realities. That's sex. Let's talk gender. Gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female. Again, gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. We can break this definition into two separate categories, gender identity and gender role or expression. Gender identity is one's internal sense of being male, female, both, or neither, and gender role or expression are social and cultural aspects of being male and female, also referred to as masculinity or femininity. So let's first talk about gender roles and expressions. So gender roles and expressions are how males and females are expected to act in any given culture. When the majority of a group, either male or female, acts in a certain way, an expectation is formed, otherwise known as a stereotype. And these stereotypes are referred to as masculinity and femininity. So a masculine stereotype would be something like interested in sports, likes trucks, doesn't talk about feelings, and doesn't cry, right? Those are all masculine stereotypes. Feminine stereotypes would be generally interested in shopping, likes makeup, likes to talk about feelings, not afraid to cry, right? Those would be general stereotypes. Now, I realize you may not like those stereotypes. You may be like, Psh, that's not me. That's fine, and that's kind of the point. 
and that for a large broad of people, that may be the case, but that might not be the case for you. Nonetheless, it is a stereotype. And you could see how those stereotypes are present in our culture. Now, uh, Preston Sprinkle says this, gender role <coughs> excuse me, has to do with stereotypical ways males and females act. If someone says their gender is different from their biological sex, and if by gender they mean gender role, what they mean to say is that they don't resonate with certain stereotypes. And so this framework has so much relational and pastoral implications, but right now we're just defining our terms, and we'll come back to this, okay? Let's talk gender identity. Gender identity is one's internal sense of being male, female, both, or neither. Now to be clear, the idea of gender identity isn't explained anywhere concretely. Is it a state of mind? Is it a metaphysical property? Nobody says. In all of my research, both secular and Christian, academic, no one is able to genuinely, uh, to specifically define uh, gender identity. In hearing all the conversations with proponents of gender theory, it seems as if the definition is rather elusive. No one can pinpoint it rather than repeating the definition. So what exactly is gender identity? It's one's internal self of being male, female. But what exactly does that mean? And they just kind of keep going in a circle when it comes to this gender identity. So there's so many questions here, and there's all sorts of debate here, but again, we're just defining our terms. Now, when we talk about somebody who is gender, transgender, what are we actually talking about? Now, transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways in which some people might experience and express, live out, their gender identities different from people whose gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. Mark Yarhouse, leading expert on this topic. So it's an umbrella term, meaning it encapsulates all sorts of people. So in one corner of the umbrella, you could have somebody who doesn't feel very masculine and doesn't feel like they fit those stereotypes, and they could identify as transgender. And on the other side of the umbrella, you could have someone who suffers severely from gender dysphoria and feels like they're born in the wrong body. Both could identify as transgender. However, typically, transgender refers to a biological female who identifies as a male, or vice versa, a biological male who identifies as a female. Now, because this term can be so broad, if anyone uses this term to describe themselves, it's important that we listen for what they mean when they use that term. I realize some people in the room may be averse to that, but remember, to really love somebody, it requires us to listen to them. And you cannot love without listening. And so it's our call as followers of Jesus that if we are to love other people like Jesus, we're to listen to where they come from. And so you may have all sorts of assumptions about what it means to be trans. And this is sometimes shaped by clickbait media headlines, etc. But a phrase that I have learned to really appreciate in this conversation is this. If you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. Because the umbrella is so large, if someone is to use that identity, it's important to ask questions about what they mean when they say that. And not in like an interrogative way, but in a loving and compassionate way. What is your experience like and what is it like for you and what does it mean to you to be transgender? So you could actually know what we're talking about. Now, uh, next, I want to define the term of gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the distress some people feel with their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex. Mark Yarhouse, again, leading expert on this, says dysphoria means being uneasy or genuinely dissatisfied with something. 
Thus, gender dysphoria refers to the experience of having a psychological and emotional identity as either male or female, and that your psychological and emotional identity does not correspond to your biological sex. This perceived incongruity can be a deep source and uh, can be the deep source and ongoing deep source of pain and ongoing discomfort. When a person experiences gender incongruence, it can cause them distress or impairment, and they may meet the criteria for the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So someone with gender dysphoria is someone who doesn't feel comfortable with their own biological sex. Now again, gender dysphoria could be super mild or very severe. It just depends on the individual. Now when we talk about transgender realities, the question always comes up is what about people with intersex conditions? And what is intersex? Intersex is an umbrella term to describe 16 or so medical conditions where a person is born with one or more atypical features in their sexual anatomy or sex chromosomes. These conditions include atypical features in a person's sex chromosomes, reproductive organs, and anatomical sex. What is important to note is that not, not all intersex conditions are the same. In some cases, in fact, in many cases, most people go their entire lives not knowing they were born with the intersex condition because it's, so, it's, it's, it's not obvious, it's not clearly aware. It is only after further testing and things that they find that, that that's the case. And so the other thing with intersex is that most people with intersex condition present little to no ambiguity about their biological sex. Most people who are intersex are confident with the biological sex that they, that they have. Don't believe me? No worries. Intersex, uh, this is from the Intersex Society of North America. Intersex people are perfectly comfortable adopting either a male or female identity and are not seeking a genderless society to label themselves as a member of a third gender class. Imai Koyoma, I am so sorry if I butchered her name, uh, from the Intersex Initiative of Portland says this, most people born with intersex conditions do not view themselves as belonging to one binary sex or another. They simply see themselves as a man or a woman with a birth condition like any other. So for most people with intersex, A, they sometimes don't know that they have it, and B, a majority of them feel confident identifying with their birth sex. Uh, and most of them have a clear birth sex. They're just different realities for them as an individual. But what these people are often used as is pawns in the conversation in this dialogue, right? The progressive side uses them and pawns to further perpetuate their rhetoric, and the conservative side uses them to further perpetuate their rhetoric. What's really important to remember is we're talking about people, not just a condition, an actual human being. And they don't want to be used, their experience does not want to be used to further uphold and defend your ideology. They are people worthy of love and dignity. People who are intersex are, are people and made as image bearers of God. Now, I know what it feels like. You just drink from a massive fire hose, and you forgot six of those definitions, and you're not sure where we are. That's fine. That's okay, right? I realize this is a bit confusing. But it's important that we define all those terms so as we continue in our conversation, we know exactly what we're talking about. Um, and so don't feel like you're a little bit lost or whatever. This has been moving at an exponential rate that doctors and psychologists are trying to catch up with the literature as well. So if you feel a little bit like, whoa, what the heck was that? 
imagine how they feel, right? And imagine how I feel trying to translate how they feel to you, right? We all feel that little bit of a way because of how incredibly fast this has progressed and moved forward. And so don't worry if you're feeling a little bit lost. It's okay. And I think as we go on, it'll make a bit more sense. Now, to further frame this conversation, I want to talk about our responses to this conversation before we get into the meat of actually responding to these. And the first is the idea that gender needs to be deconstructed. This is one framework. This is one side of the conversation. On one side is the point of view that gender is a tool of oppression and has brought great harm, and our job is to deconstruct it and remove it from society as soon as possible. This is one side. Nancy Piercy says this, drawing on the work of philosopher Michel Foucault and thinkers such as Judith Butler, queer theorists construe gender categories as mere social constructions, cultural inventions, and cultural inventions perpetuated to serve the power plays of the religious and cultural elites that stand behind them. In this understanding, there is no compelling biological realities behind these categories, far less any natural, organically embedded norms in which we're supposed to walk. They are the outer layers that need to be cast off in search of authenticity. So the idea here on this framework is that gender is in no way connected to, our biological, to a biological reality. It has simply been made up to help the powerful become more powerful and the powerless to be oppressed. This is their framework. But I want to call our attention back to our first few conversations in this series. As I told you before, this series is basically one really massive long nine-hour lecture, right? And I'm building upon each other. So our whole series on the theology of the body and the story our body tells is building on top of this. So if right now you're a little bit like, whoa, go back and listen to those things and they kind of help build that and reestablish that framework. And all of our conversations of sexuality are, are being born out of a theology of our body and what it means to be made in the Imago Dei the, the, as image bearers of God. So please go back and listen to those. That's going to help make more sense of this. But briefly, what undergirds our, undergirds our cultural view of sexuality and specifically gender is the assumption that our identity is self-prescribed and that our bodies are meaningless, right? When it comes to who we are, we believe that there's no external force that should have any influence on us. It is only what I feel within that matters. Think of the famous phrase, I think, therefore, I am. This is the cultural motto. It is whatever I feel inside is the truest thing about me, and no external uh, force is supposed to influence that reality. And so the other half of this, so that's one thing. The other half of this is that secularism prescribes no meaning to our bodies. They're irrelevant to who we are in the world. They're just simply this organic shell that hosts the real us, the disembodied us. So if these are the operating frameworks, you can see how we get to the place where our bodies have no purpose, and therefore our biological sex is just plumbing, right? We become dis embodied. And so where this road leads ultimately is that anybody, everybody thinks that gender just does not matter and that our bodies are meaningless. And so I want to say I completely understand that we want to provide care and compassion for those rep- wrestling with deep issues of life such as sexuality and identity. But to be honest, I have deep concerns about where this leads and I, have, I, 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 I want to cast um, uh, uh, an honest and clear picture of what I think where this road ultimately leads for us as a culture. And I have one question. Does this framework actually lead to more life and fulfillment? 
are people who are pursuing this endeavor being more fulfilled? Now, for some of you, I guess, who would have more of the reservations and convictions that aligned with the gender theory, one of the things you might be thinking is, who cares? Who does this even hurt? Who cares what an individual does with their body? And for that, I have a few responses. One, I have deep concerns about where this ideology means for kids and for teens. Since we have begun this quote-unquote gender revolution, there have been massive spikes in something known as rapid-onset gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria being a person not feeling integrated with their biological sex. Rapid-onset mean it's coming quick, it's coming fast, and there's no signs of it. It just hits, right? That's rapid-onset gender dysphoria. In 2009, the Tavistock Center in London treated 51 children and teenagers who had gender dysphoria or identified as trans. In 2016, the same clinic treated 1,766 children and teenagers. In 2019, it saw 2,364 kids. That is a 4,535% increase in just 10 years. This is unprecedented and unheard of. You're never going to find in any other medical category something like that taking place. Now, some would argue, well, it's just because people feel more comfortable about coming out as trans. Therefore, there's less of a stigma. However, this is not what the data shows. In 2018, Brown University did a study of 256 parents and kids who fit the rapid onset gender dysphoria description. Here's what they found. Few of those kids showed any signs of gender dysphoria growing up. Second, their new identity appeared out of the blue. There were no leading signs up to it. One day, it just happened. Thirdly, many if not all of their friends were trans, and their coming out followed that of their friends. Next, many of them became more popular as an outcome of coming out as trans. Next, they engaged more heavily in online social media activity around their coming out. And lastly, many of them had underlying mental health concerns, right? 48% of those experienced a traumatic or stressful event prior to the onset of their gender dysphoria, and 45% were engaging in non-suicidal self-injury prior to the dysphoria. And there are so many more stats that I'm not going to bore you with about all the other underlying mental health concerns that are present with an individual who comes with rapid onset gender dysphoria. So, for those of you who may like, well, that's just the parents reporting. What if they're transphobic? What if they're hyper-conservative? Just as a way of, like, painting the picture a little bit, almost all of the parents used in the study categorized themselves as liberal in their social views. 86% were for uh, in favor of same-sex marriage, and 88% believed in the rights and protections for transgender people. So by and large, many of them did not feel, fit that category. And you may say, well, that's just one study. Maybe. But it also doesn't account for the massive reversal that we've seen in those who identify as trans. Check this out. Preston Sprinkle says this. Historically, biological males have tended to outnumber biological females and the rates of gender dysphoria, including late-onset gender dysphoria. But there's been a stunning reversal in the sex ratio amount of kids and teenagers identifying as trans. The UK, for instance, has witnessed a 1,460% increase in males and a 5,337 incre increase in females identifying as trans compared to the number of referrals in 10 years prior. So what they've seen in, past, in the past, men primarily were more of those identifying with gender dysphoria. 
But since this has come more popularized, that has flipped astronomically. Now, uh, the study of Brown University uh, briefly showed that they thought this was a deep association for women uh, and for girls because of other dysphoria struggles that often women have, that of body dysmorphia and things of that nature. And so leading experts in this conversation think that that's why it's influencing women differently than it's influencing men. Um, that is, at this time, just some of their thoughts. But with this conversation comes the conversation of how children and teenagers are being medicalized when they identify as trans. So for decades, the method of treatment was what's called watch and see. Um, this is a method where if kids expressed any sort of amount of dysphoria, the parents and doctors would kind of watch and see and wait what happens till after puberty, and then begin to have discussions and conversations about what the best method of treatment was. Because studies show that up to 88% of early onset dysphoria cases end up desisting. That is, the dysphoria goes away after puberty. So for these young kids who feel that, almost 88% of them end up realigning with their biological sex after puberty. And so... If you were to present this as an option for a young person wrestling with gender dysphoria, it is now viewed as reparative therapy and should be resisted. All the literature is pulling out this wait and see, and all of them are responding now primarily with let's treat these kids uh, with hormones and surgery. Instead of, the common uh, instead of the common treatment method, which is wait and see, hormone therapy and a lot of cases, surgical transitioning are happening to our teenagers. We are seeing kids as young as 12 start getting cross-sex hormones and biological girls as young as 13 get double mastectomies. Keep in mind, your brain is not fully developed until you're 25. We don't trust 13 years olds to vote, to drive, or to even have the ability to smoke cigarettes, yet we are trusting them with a the decision to change their body in such a prominent way. I have serious doubts that they understand the how their decisions will be making permanent change in their lives. Now, in addition to that, in some cases, parents have lost custody of their children because they did not think it was wise to give their kids hormones and consent to having their teens' breasts removed. I think of three cases right now where children are actually removed from the parents and put under different guardians because they refuse to let their kids go forward with this. I have deep concerns about where this leads. Next. I have deep concerns for how this impacts women. Nancy Piercy says this, to protect women's rights, we must be able to say what a woman is. If postmodernism is correct, that the body itself is just a societal construct, then it becomes impossible to argue for rights based on the sheer fact of being female. We cannot legally protect a category of people if we cannot define the category. Right now, there is legislation that was written to protect women based on sex that is being rewritten for gender identity. And there's a whole category of radical feminists who are now labeled TERFs, which stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminist, if they do not support the framework around gender, leading many people who have fought long and hard for the equality for women feeling hopeless. Mary Lou Singleton of the Women's Liberation Front said this, my entire life work is fighting for the class of people who have been oppressed based on their biological sex, including atrocities like child marriage, infant side of baby girls, and female genital mutilation, which occurs across the globe. But because of the gender identity movement, it is now deemed transphobic to even label these victims women and girls. What we are seeing is the legal measure of the material, legal measure of the material reality of sex, Protections based on sex are being eliminated 
from the law. If we cannot say what a woman is, how can we protect them? How can we ensure that they are getting equal and fair treatment in the world? And this has all sorts of other cultural and societal implications that we don't have time to get into now, but that's just a question I ask. Now, thirdly, where does this road lead logically? Okay, if we're to follow the identity logic behind this, that undergirds this, that my internal sense of self is what defines what is true, why is this only limited to gender? Why not race, right? You guys all may have heard of the famous story of Rachel Dolezal, who was a black rights activism teacher until, and worked for the AACP until she was exposed as a white woman. She claimed that who she was on the inside was not white but black. And this obviously stirred up controversy as she would often associate herself with the great African-American struggle of history. She would say, you know our struggle or our past. But when she came out to actually be found as white, the black community was very upset, saying, how could you possibly say things like that when you don't even know what it means to truly be black in America? And when confronted this with reality, Rachel Dolezal says, it's just how I feel on the inside. I've never identified with whiteness. Now, if our identity is truly just internally constructed, why is that not okay? Right? Now, secondly, why stop at race? What about transableism, otherwise known as body integrity identity, sorry, body identity integrity disorder? This is where a person feels that a part of their body, a limb or an organ, feels alien to their body and seek to have it removed. They identify as somebody who is disabled, and so they seek to actually be disabled in the world. For an example, it would be like a male who says, these legs don't feel like my own, I want them removed, that I can be disabled to how I feel on the inside. Now you might be thinking, that sounds really radical, it sounds pretty crazy, but is it more radical and crazy than a 13-year-old getting a double mastectomy? Both have the same kind of consequences and power behind them. And it's easy for us to point and see that that sounds a little bit crazy, but does it really when this is our logical, frame of logical train of thought? And so, this is one framework, and I have deep, deep concerns about that. The other side of the framework is this idea that gender needs roles, right? So on this side is the idea that gender is a part of design, which is absolutely true, but often, when we have a conversation about gender, what we're actually talking about is gender roles and stereotypes. Much of our understanding about what it means to be a man or a woman is not rooted in what it means to be made in God's image, but rather cultural expectations about men and women and how they are to behave. And I think this shallow understanding helps contribute to gender dysphoria. When we read about young kids beginning to wonder whether or not they're born in the wrong body, quote unquote, one of the things it always leads to is they say, I don't conform to this typical, typical stereotype of what it means to be a man or a woman. And so, um, this, this kind of questioning, I think, leads them ultimately down the road. If, th if they don't conform to the stereotypes, they begin to wonder, am I actually in the wrong body? So, for example, if there's a girl who likes to race dirt bikes, hates the color pink, and refuses to wear dresses, she can begin to wonder, have I been born in the wrong body because I do not like these things? But in no way, shape, or form is she any less of a woman. She just likes different things. But when we... When we constrain masculinity and femininity to simply hobbies or dress, we can see how this could be an issue. Let's look at two examples of how things have changed in the history of time. First, the color's blue and pink. When you think blue, you think what? Boy. When you think pink, you think what? Right? Pretty straightforward. This was not the reality 100 years ago. Listen to this. From the Ladies' Home Journal in 1918, they said this. 
Pink being a more decided and stronger color is more suitable for a boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for a girl. A hundred years ago, it was flipped. Pink was masculine, so men, you have permission to wear pink, right? If you're waiting, there it is, right? But this was the framework before. Before the 20th century also, all babies were put in those white frilly dresses. Don't believe me, look at some of those photos. Both girls and boys, big white poofy dresses, right? What about that? Our culture shapes what we think it is to be masculine and feminine. Second is roles in the home. Modern assumptions about roles in the home are mostly informed right now by the Industrial Revolution. Previously, before the Industrial Revolution, men were highly involved in educating and raising children, while the women were more involved in the economic side of things to contribute to providing for the family. But it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution came and men's jobs took them out of the home and into the workplace that this changed. When they had to go to offices and factories, it left the women at home to raise and nurture the children while the men went and provided for the family. And so prior to the Industrial Revolution, men and women were very involved in the home, and men even more so, and the women would be basically the primary breadwinner and different things that she would do to bring income in for the family, and the husband was responsible for caring for the home and raising the children. And then after the Industrial Revolution, that flipped. And so we can see how our frameworks about what it means to be a man and woman is deeply shaped by the world around us. And the church is not immune to this. Every single person in this room has been to a stereotypical men's or women's gathering, right? The men, we go fishing, we eat something fried, we look at a lifted truck, ooh, man, right? That's what we do. And it's catered to, like, the manly man, you know? And then for women, um, <coughs> they have a, 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 a similar experience where everything is catered to the stereotypical things of a woman, right? So the guys would go fishing and rappel off walls, and the, the, the ministry would be named something like Warriors for God, right? We get the war paint. Here we are, men. And for women, they would show up to a ministry, and there'd be like tea parties and watercolors, and it's called something like Flourish or something like that, you know? And so for people who don't fit typical gender stereotypes, not a diss if you like the name Flourish, but, you know, it's, it's uh, if there's a women's ministry that uses that, I apologize on YouTube. I'm not dissing you. But... They cater to stereotypical realities for men and women. And if somebody doesn't identify, like it doesn't feel like those stereotypes fit them, you could see how it'd be easy for them to feel othered, displaced. So when roles or stereotypes are how we define gender, it leads those who don't fit in those molds to begin to wonder if, if that is what it means to be a man or a woman, I'm not that, and begin to feel like things are disaligned, when that's just not the case at all. And so what is gender? Is there another way? And I'm so glad you asked. And it's this, gender displayed as design. So if the answer is not that gender needs to be deconstructed or that gender needs stronger roles based on stereotypes, then what's the answer? I would argue and say that historical view of followers of Jesus is that our gender is a God-given gift to display the beauty and wonder of creation. That who God has made us is deeply rooted in that. And we know that by coming back to Genesis. Genesis 1.27 God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Our bodies are integral in what it means to be human and what it means to be made in God's image. Remember the word image is the word salem, meaning statue or idol. And so we are idols or statues to show what God is like. We are living images to show God to the world. And how we were made points to why we were made. Our design has a talos or purpose, and our design is as male 
and female. When Jesus was asked about marriage or sexuality, he always came back to this passage right here, the Imago Dei, because this is where it all begins. And everything we believe about who we are and why we are is rooted here in Genesis. Now notice, Jesus clearly says that we are made into two sexually dimorphic categories, male and female. Our biological sex is crucial to what it means to be human. Phyllis Bird says this, sex is the constitutive differentiation observable at birth and encoded in our genes and essential for the survival of the species and basic to all systems of socialization. It plays a fundamental role in the identity formation of every individual and must be consequently be regarded as essential datum in an attempt to define the human being and the nature of mankind and thus provide a primary test for false notions of generic humanity. I know that's a mouthful. All she's saying, sex really matters and it's how God made us. With this conversation as well is the reality between, there is a harmony between genders. And I want to pastorally speak into this at this point. It seems that at the same time, our culture is trying to simultaneously deconstruct gender and also divide the genders. It seems that um, in certain circles, men are being pitted against women and women are being pitted against men. It is this power struggle. It is this quest for who becomes on top. But to live into the creation order means this, that both males and females are necessary and required to reflect God's image in the world and live out the creational account. When God created Adam, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. And so Eve comes along, and she's not just like Adam's sidekick, like Adam's Batman, she's Robin. Absolutely not. She is the, complete, the completion of who he is. That male and female both beautifully and wonderfully depict what God is like to all the world. All throughout the scriptures, God uses both masculine and feminine characteristics to describe how he is. In one hand, he says that he is a protector, a guider, the one who prides before it. And he also says that he treats us like a nursing mother who holds us close to his chest. God uses both feminine and masculine characteristics to define how he treats us and what he's like to all the world. So both males and females represent what God is like in all the world. And so um, I did a teaching a while back about a vision for women in ministry. And if you're looking for something more to like look about how this has lived in the church, there's like an hour talk there. Go back there because we don't have time today. Um, but I think that would be helpful. But lastly... I want to say that the Christian community, we must do a much better job at laying forth what biblical masculinity and femininity look like. It has nothing to do with hobbies or color schemes, but it has everything to do with character and responsibility. Again, Nancy Piercy, the GOAT, says, Christians should be on the forefront of creative thinking to recover richer definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman. The church should be the first place where young people can find freedom from unbiblical stereotypes, the freedom to work out what it means to be created in God's image as holistic and redeemed people. Now, what about intersex? What do we do with people like that who find themselves in that place? Well, Jesus makes space for them. Back to Matthew 19, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus says this, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, there were eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. The one who can accept this should accept this. Here in this text, Jesus seems to have an understanding and an acknowledgement that there are some people who are born with atypical sexual realities. 
They are eunuchs in Jesus' words. And Jesus makes special provision for them. In Isaiah 56, it says this, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, hear what the Lord says, To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. When Jesus is confronted with this reality, he makes space for those who don't fit into typical categories for sexuality. And he says that in honoring him, in living for him, he will give them a name better than sons and daughters. That in the house of God, those who find themselves in that type of situation, there's a special grace for and a special calling for. And they're to be esteemed and loved and cared for by the Christian community. Secondly, Jesus doesn't deconstruct gender. Just a few verses above this, he quotes Genesis 1.27. And he reaffirms male and female. He creates space for those who don't fit in those categories, but he reaffirms the categories again. This is how Jesus handles this conversation. Now, what a lot of people like to do is say that the existence of intersex people point to the reality that gender is a construct. It's just a social construct. It doesn't matter because intersex people exist. Preston Sprinkle, a leading expert on this, says this. On a conceptual level, I don't think the existence of intersex persons support the idea that a person's internal sense of self is more indicative of who they are than their bodies. We're dealing with two different ontological realities here that shouldn't be quickly mapped onto one another. There's no question about whether intersex peoples have an intersex condition. They factually are intersex. The same is not true for someone whose internal sense of self differs from their sexed body. The claim that a person's gender identity is more indicative of who they are than their body relies on several questionable assumptions about human nature, the re- human nature, the relationship between the body and God's image, and the role that biological sex plays in determining identity. Just because intersex people exist doesn't mean gender does not. They're two different realities that we hold and work through together. So, we're landing this plane, but briefly, a word to those who struggle with gender dysphoria. First and foremost, you being cisgendered, meaning you aligning with your sexuality, you aligning with your biological sex, is not the primary concern for us as a community. First and foremost, we want you to meet Jesus. And so, if that is you, if you are watching, if you are listening, know this. Our concern is not first and foremost to get you to align with your biological sex. Our concern is have you met Jesus? Do you know who he is? And I am so sorry that the Christian community treats you differently than everybody else. When everybody else comes in with different complexities and realities, we don't first say, hey, clean those up, then you can be a part. But for those who I think um, wrestle with same-sex attraction, and specifically those who are transgender or wrestling to gender dysphoria, the Christian community specifically treats them as othered, and we need to repent of that sin. It is our call as followers of Jesus to point people to Jesus, and Jesus the Messiah and the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and life and, and bring those people to live in the reality of what it means to be made in the image of God. Secondly, you don't have to believe to belong here. You could come and wrestle, and you could be listening to this sermon right now right, and say, I disagree with everything you said. That's fine. We're happy you're here, and we love to wrestle through these questions together. You don't have to believe to belong here. We would love to care for you and love you and integrate you into a part of a community as you wrestle through life's most difficult questions. So if you are wrestling with gender dysphoria, we love you. 
and we want to walk with you through the complexities of your life, and you are welcome here. And I don't say that as some, like, you're welcome here, but X, Y, and Z, you are genuinely welcomed here to come and discover who Jesus is. Next, a word to our community. First and foremost, brothers and sisters, we need to start with Jesus. Often we work from this conversation backwards. Too many of us are getting caught in uncharitable rhetoric around this and utilize Facebook and other social media platforms and sound bites to communicate how we feel about this matter. Wrong point. We are getting caught into the culture war and not providing, providing a different space for people to think through and wrestle through difficult questions. We start with Jesus first and foremost and we work through the other realities together. Secondly, brothers and sisters, we need to create an environment of welcome. And not theoretically, not hypothetically, not only if they conform to our versions of what we're comfortable with, but however somebody chooses to come and be a part of the community, it is radical hospitality. It is not treating them as othered or different or exclusionary, but is seeing every person who walks through these doors and every person who comes to be a part of this community as made in the image of God, and we love and care for them passionately. And radical hospitality. We, let them make, we make sure that they feel comfortable and welcome to come and explore their faith here. Next, I want to lean into us a little bit with this. Who are we becoming by who we're listening to? Too many of us have allowed YouTube and Facebook videos to inform our opinion on the transgender community. And frankly and honestly, we've become lazy. We've allowed sound bites and talking points and talking heads to frame our whole conversation around this, and we should be ashamed our goal is to first come to the scriptures, see what the scriptures say, and lead out of that place. Not jump to our favorite uh, cultural commentator and align with them and take verses to match that ideology. Wrong. We come to the text first and lead out of here and have conversation from that place. And so who are we listening to and how is that shaping our view? I think a lot of Christians feel that the transgender community and this ideology is an enemy, and they're not. They're those loved by God who were called to serve and to bless. Remember that Paul says that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but, but principalities and powers and rulers. Those who are behind the scenes. That when we look at another person who may believe differently than we and may think differently than me, they are not the enemy. They are made in the image of God, and our job is to love them till they're friends, until they're family. That is our response. What do we do about pronouns? This is a large conversation happening in our moment right now. Some followers of Jesus see this as a time to take a stand. I will call them what they are. That is not the way of Jesus. As someone comes to you and says, my name is such and such, the common courtesy thing to do and the loving thing to do is call them what they ask you to call them, right? You would never question me if I came in, my name is Andrew. Is it though? Like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, of course it is. That's how I've introduced myself, you know? And so just compassion and thoughtfulness and literally common sense would say, be compassionate to others. Don't start the first step on hostility. What kind of ground place is that for the good news of Jesus? Are you really that? What, what is that? Never. Absolutely not. Be compassionate. Be understanding. The next thing I have for us to ask is this. If Jesus is Lord, that means he's Lord over our bodies. And so Jesus calls us all to submit our bodies to his lordship, 
to what he says is actually right and wrong in the world, regardless of how I feel about it. This is the call for followers of Jesus. And so, graciously, humbly, I'd submit before you that our goal as followers of Jesus with people wrestling with gender dysphoria is to lead them to a place of being reunited with their body, reintegrated with their body. Now, this is not going to happen over one conversation, over a cup of coffee. This happens over a lifetime of friendship, love, and pastoral care. And the goal is not so that they get to that place, but it's we want to love them. Hopefully, they will get to that place. And lastly, we need to be a redemptive community. Mark Yarhouse, again, says this, if you want a person suffering from gender incongruence to choose a path that seems more redemptive, you will want to be a part of a redemptive community that facilitates that kind of decision-making. If we think that simply, quote-unquote, taking a stand against things we disagree with is enough, we're badly mistaken. Jesus did not come into Jerusalem and set up a bunch of banners saying the kingdom of God is here. Call this number to be corrected, right? Call this number to be... Jesus was embodied, walking through cities and places, interacting with people, hearing stories, and changing lives. Jesus was not concerned with changing the political narrative. He was concerned with loving people into the kingdom of God. This is our response. This is our call. Paul makes it very clear that we demolish strongholds with truth, yes and amen, but truth is always facilitated best in relationship and conversation and love and deep care. And this is our call as a community to embody and live in that way. Now, I've gone for a while here. If you're still with me, thank you. If you've just come back, we missed you. Welcome back. Um, I realize there's a lot here. And to be honest with you guys, there was like another hour of this that was just cut that I just didn't have the time to. And so I just, I, I want to express my heart in this, that, that, I, that I realized this was a fragile attempt by me. And even as a concluding, I, there's so many more things I want to have said. But what I really want to say is this, that as a community of Jesus, we're called to embody love to the world. And then I want to let anybody know who's wrestling with any sort of reality that we deeply love you and we want to walk with you and we care about you and we want to see you come to life in Jesus. And there's going to be a lot of realities that we work through as a community as we move forward in this for what that looks like and, and, and how we foster that kind of thing here. But we all have to be on board with that, with loving the lost, with caring for those who are wounded and hurting and sitting with those who need compassion. And that is our desire. We're going to enter into a time of response. And I just have a sense that as we respond, Jesus just wants to wash truth over our lives. For some of us, that truth looks like being reintegrated with the bodies we have been given as a gift. For other of us, that looks like Realigning with the truth that we need to be more loving and gracious. For those of us, it, it needs to be, we need to be realigned with the doctrine of the scriptures and what Jesus actually says is true and good. 
And for others of us, it looks like repentance for maybe the ways that we've spoken and conducted ourselves towards those who are different than us. Sincere, wholehearted repentance. So we're just going to create a time to respond. And there's going to be a few people up here who are just available to pray for you. Um, for whatever you need prayer for. If the Lord's doing something different in you right now, we want to respond to that as well. Let us stand, if you're able, and just worship Jesus and let his truth be proclaimed over us. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.